It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So, Allison, how have you been enjoying the weather? For February? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Like, it's been nicer, but... Yeah. And, like, weather's not the same as climate. And there's, like, some El Nino going on, right? I, I think so. But it's still, it's still off-putting. Like, like, my mood is highly, highly dependent on the weather. And, and so when it's sunny and 15 degrees above zero, as it was in Toronto last Friday, I feel pretty good. Until I remember that... Like, remember how in Dawn McCullers last night, it just sort of stays daylight as the clock ticks toward the end of the world at midnight? Not really, but that sounds ominous. Yeah, usually at this time of year, everything is awash with gray, and and we're sort of just just barely holding on for spring. Yeah, now there's robins. (laughs) Robins in February. Spring, I mean, last year, that also meant wildfire season. As a lifelong resident of Southern Ontario, I I didn't even know that the Environment Canada weather app had a symbol for that, like had a symbol for for smoke. I I didn't even know that smoke counted as a kind of weather. And the symbol, by the way, looks an awful lot like the the Borg emblem, the the claw. People in Alberta and B.C. have been accustomed to smoky wildfire seasons for some time. But the chances are that while it might not be the case in Ontario Every year going forward, it's going to be the case here more often than not, or at least with increasing frequency. And then we'll spend a month or two fretting about Ontario's ill-preparedness for climate change before the urgency superficially subsides for another year. It feels very myopic and and even Ford-like for us to only think about something when we have proximity to it, you know, when, when it affects us viscerally. It was actually a TikTok that I saw last summer that illuminated the best to me how the Ontario government was handling, uh, fighting all of the massive wildfires that were taking place last summer. Did it involve or showcase a particularly evocative dance? It was by this guy, this user named Toasty Trees Zero, who was apparently a firefighter in Red Lake, which is near the northwest edge of the province, like two and a half hours out of Dryden. And it was just a short clip of a pair of firefighters decked out in orange shirts with Province of Ontario logos on the back, looking out over a lake as an apocalyptic quantity of smoke slowly kind of rises from beyond the trees on the opposite shore. And they had with them, like, 
such a surprisingly minimal amount of equipment. Like, it really looked like people out on a camping trip more so than a government-led emergency mission. The superimposed text read, being grossly underpaid by the Ontario government and being down 48 crews, followed by us knowing we will get after it anyway. If this was like the middle of last year, I'm surprised it didn't have like Bill Hader dancing. No, but it did use that song. And as of now, the TikTok has three million views. Perhaps we should talk to some of these fire rangers then. I bet they have a lot to say about Doug Ford. Smith, publisher of Queen's Park Today, and at least it's kind of cold again this week. I'm Jonathan Goldsby, news editor at Candleland, and like the fans of the Song of Ice and Fire books, I am holding out for a dream of spring that may or may not ever come. This is Wag the Doug, a monthly podcast about Doug Ford. A pretty stark scenario took place last summer. More than 420,000 hectares of Ontario burned in over 740 wildfires. And the provincial government said nothing about it. From June to October, the Ministry of Natural Resources issued zero press releases about the fires. Minister Graydon Smith never addressed the public, save for like a talk radio appearance or two. If you wanted to know if there was an active wildfire near you, you had to hop on a ministerial website that contained a list of them. So it was like sort of like the this is fine meme, sort of. Sort of. So when the thick smoke was blanketing southern Ontario in June and July, Queen's Park, yeah, didn't really say much, anything. It wasn't until mid-October, safely after the smoke had literally cleared, that Graydon Smith got in front of a camera to describe the fire season as having been challenging and to pledge $20.5 million more in funding to be used to recruit staff, buy drones, and collaborate with universities to better understand the evolving science behind wildland fire management. Through this funding, we're investing in aerial fire suppression technologies, including drones to help us detect fires earlier and see where our efforts can be most effective. On this show, we've started to notice some patterns, Jono, when it comes to politics. And one of the things that we keep kind of circling around is that a government's willingness to divulge information sets the terms of the conversation and that by withholding ministers or data, the province can kind of make things go away to a point. Yeah, like I think three and a half years ago, we did an episode about climate change, three and a half and probably even longer. And, you know, we talked about how it was a huge topic of conversation at Queen's Park during the Kathleen Wynne years because the liberals were creating a cap and trade program and just generally including the environment in the portfolio of stuff they wanted to talk about. Right. And in contrast to that, we've seen the Doug Ford government be able to just avoid talking about the environment and climate change almost entirely because they just don't do it. 
That doesn't mean there isn't reporting on it, but like without clips of a minister talking or a press release making an announcement, like largely there's just going to be less news. The opposition can put questions about climate change to the government during question period, but ministers can and do respond by talking about the anti-littering day the PC has created or the prospect of a new provincial park coming down the pipe. And you ask people about the number of run issue related to the environment. Local litter um, almost always comes to the top. There's an inherent enthusiasm related to issues uh, around the environment. Yeah, so it's easy to forget the degree to which the mainstream media can both dictate the terms of debate or just be led around because there's only, you know, there's only so many reporters, there's only so much time to go around. And if the government, if a government is doing lots and lots of bad things, those reporters are spending every single day reporting those lots and lots of bad things, not, not even talking about all the other bad things that, you know, the government is doing, is neglecting to do. Well, yeah, and I mean the 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 twenty point five million dollars in October for firefighting from Graydon Minister Graydon Smith is a great example because if you Google Minister Graydon Smith wildfires, like you could get a tons of news hits about that announcement. What you don't get is anything saying Minister Graydon Smith avoided the media all summer while wildfires burned, which would have been a perfectly fine story to write, but it just was not written. And in some ways, that's like. That doesn't necessarily add much to the the f- conversation mm-hmm. when fires are actually burning. I don't know. I kind of I wish I wrote that story to be honest. Yeah, it's a weird thing. And like in sometimes in, in governments that are relatively competent or on top of things, I feel like that gives reporters more more time. Ironically, it gives reporters more time to go out and look for stories and to drive an agenda because there's not necessarily as much bullshit coming down the pipe every single day. I'm thinking like. Remember how the star managed to get the beer store reform just by camp by crusading on that for a while? Yeah, and I, I mean, in last summer, kind of in lieu of government information about the forest fires or like information directly from the government or ministers talking about it, what the average media consumer was presented with was like a bunch of articles about the merits of air purifiers and like online debates about whether it was okay to sit on a patio. I got an air purifier on this time last year. It's a birthday gift. Um, that's the type of thing I look for as a birthday present. And at the time, I remember, like was reading this, the reviews on you know wire cutters. Like, oh, this is good for wildfire smoke. It's like I, you know, I'm thinking, oh, thank goodness, I don't need it for that. I mostly got it for you know COVID type paranoia reasons, and I'm still glad to have it for that. But yeah, I did not guess that within a matter of months it would become an invaluable tool. Uh, in that fight. And even just looking on um, Camel, Camel, Camel is a website that tracks Amazon prices over time. And this particular pair of purifiers, one that, that in Canada is only available on Amazon. And you can see over the course of the last year, the price just skyrocket. I mean, goodness knows there are you know countless variables that affect an Amazon price. But it is it is striking to look at, at the graph uh, for the just Amazon.ca prices for this thing to just shoot up from... $275 or so up to 425 right now, peaking around 550 sometimes. Damn, that's a lot. Yeah. So, I mean, like, on the one hand, it's pretty straightforward. You know, citizens in the media pay attention to what the, or at least take cues from what the government says. But yeah, we don't all, we don't think, almost by definition, we don't think as often about the things or at least deep, think deeply about the implications of the things that a government chooses to ignore. 
And in the case of wildfires, as we talked about at the top, they can really only be ignored up to a point. Fire and smoke are tangible things that hurt people and (laughs) destroy the environment and require evacuations. I think we should make a BC comparison now. Um, I am the publisher of a news outlet called BC Today, so I know a lot about what happens in that province and work with lots of, of great editors and reporters there. And, you know, as many people know, BC has had to deal with wildfires to a greater degree than Ontario, and the fire seasons have really been increasingly bad over the past decade. In BC, wildfires directly impact almost everyone in the province's life every summer. Smoky skies are routine occurrences. Evacuations happen very often. The town of Lytton, for example, burned to a crisp two and a half years ago and is, like, still not rebuilt. If you're planning a summer wedding in B.C., your very real concern is not just, is it going to rain that day? It's like, will there be wildfire smoke and a creepy orange sky and ash on my wedding dress? And, like, don't believe me, the Weather Network interviewed wedding photographers about this last summer. The wind had shifted in a way that ash was falling from the sky on top of the guests, and all of a sudden the couple had sunset-like colors in mid-afternoon. We had a couple, they drove 12 hours from Vancouver to Moraine Lake um, in Banff National Park, and we couldn't even see the back of the lake. It was just completely gone with the fire smoke. So every summer, the B.C. government responds to these circumstances by holding many press conferences. The Minister of Public Safety gets up there. The Emergency Management and Climate Readiness Minister gets out there. B.C. wildfire officials get out there and they they tell people the situation. They tell them where the fires are and how they're moving. They tell them how the wildfire service is responding and, and they tell people how to save, stay safe. Wait, they have a climate readiness minister? Yeah, you can tell a lot about a government by the name of their the name of their ministers. <laughs> but do they have a minister of red tape reduction? I don't think so. And, you know, just in financial terms, B.C. spent nearly a billion dollars on wildfire management in 2023. Ontario spent like $130 million. And this Minister of Climate Readiness, are they the the, the Premier's nephew, by any chance? (laughs) I don't think so. (laughs) Wow, what a province. It's true. As we alluded to, as the entire universe effectively alludes to, uh, this is all going to become... uh, more an increasingly frequent occurrence in Ontario and, and and everywhere. But last fall, the province of Ontario quietly released a climate change impact assessment that it had commissioned in 2020 and then sat on without publishing for over seven months. Like like the report was dated January 2023, but just, you know, slipped online in, in August. The 534-page report paints a dire picture of how the warming climate will impact Ontario specifically. Over the next several decades, the report forecasts crop failures, rising social inequality, increased risks for animal species and ecosystems, as well as economic shocks and infrastructure failures. But rest assured, not all 534 pages are doom and gloom. Uh, at least one or two of those pages are like copyright and like endnotes and a picture. A picture. Yeah, some photos. <laughs> photos yeah. Some graphs, which, which spell point doom and gloom. But like the copyright, King's Printer and Right of Ontario, like, yeah, that no doom and gloom there. I guess if we have a king. He's sick, too. Oh, yeah. (laughs) According to the report, by the end of the century, actually, I guess it's not even that far away. It was 2080. How many years ago was that? Less than 60 years? Yeah, 60-some-odd. 55 years? Another another half century. 
So then, yeah, according to the report, in the next 55, 60 years, which sounds like a long time, but like if you were born yesterday, it's not. Well, it is, but you'll be alive. (laughs) Or not. I mean, that's kind of what the support forecasts. I guess. But but 2080 is the, the year they're kind of forecasting a bunch of this stuff, too. They they predict that the southern regions in Ontario will experience over 60 days of extreme heat per year. Extreme heat is when the temperature reaches at least 32 degrees Celsius. 60 days per year. Currently, there are about nine. The number of extreme cold days in the north, which is when it's negative mm-hmm. 25 or below, is expected to decline from 55 days, which is like the current mm-hmm. average, mm-hmm. to 12 you know, I mentioned that because obviously heat causes fires <laughs> and uh, <laughs> a lack of cold makes a lack of snow, which mm-hmm. can make drought, which makes fires worse. Yeah. Right. So all this is like interconnected. Is parched and dry and not soaked with with water, with moisture. Yeah, that's that's not that's not good. Right. So weather is not climate, but like in some ways that doesn't help. It's funny because there's been talk like for years that maybe Ontario can like start doing more farming up north once it gets warmer. But one of the things I noticed in this report was all of these warnings that uh, livestock will be at risk of wildfire and um, farms will be at risk of wildfires. Yeah, just affecting farming closer to where the the fires are. Yeah, Yeah. so I'm sure people that people are weighing that uh, that risk right now. I'm I'm certain the the impacts of the unseasonably warm weather this year and and like increasingly less less freeze in the north are already. Showing up just a few days ago, the Nishnabe Aski First Nation declared a state of emergency because the ice roads that its member nations use to transport goods to and from themselves are, are melted because of the weather and they just can't get shipments of supplies anywhere and are asking the province and the feds for help. So the vast destruction and disaster forecast in this report is frankly hard to talk about. So we won't. That was Wag the Dug, a show about the impending... No. Uh, so uh, so let, let's, let, let, let's talk about it. Virtually everything in the province, both natural and man-made, is at risk of and unprepared for what is to come as the planet gets hotter. Energy transmission lines, water treatment facilities, highways, moose, caribou, and bats, livestock, mental health, mining operations, the insurance system as we know it, the mudflats in the Hudson Bay, James Bay lowlands. And I think that's 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 a pretty much an exhaustive list, isn't it? <laughs> that's everything. Just about everything. You know, watching the wildfires run through Kelowna in British Columbia last summer, all I kept thinking about was like the fact that the government, and I mean specifically the Ontario government, is always talking about building things, building more infrastructure, building more houses, and how many houses we need. But, like, do we have to start accounting for the ones that are taken by the flames? <laughs> like, negative houses, negative transmission lines, negative wildlife. Like, remember how it was, like, just in the past few years, it suddenly occurred to Doug Ford that there was, like, a housing crisis? And he was like, holy shit, people people can't afford houses. Did you know about this? Did, oh, my God, we got we got to do something. I, I wonder when or if we'll have that moment for, around climate change. I, I don't know. I feel like this is something that it's sort of like it's sort of like the, like, there's like the boomer 
lag or gap before they realized that, hey, there was something going on with the housing market or just housing generally that, you know, may not actually be fair or just um, or that, you know, is is not actually sustainable in any sort of long term. I wonder, like, it feels like it's similarly outside of, like, like you sort of make a sort of just taking it for granted for so long that, oh, people can buy, you can work at a job, be in the middle class and buy a house. And it took a while for for a lot of boomers, you know, like the type who are in charge of the province to sort of catch up and realize, oh, that is not a thing anymore. I do wonder what the lag will be for climate change when sort of, you know, living with an assumption that there will be a future and perhaps even a future that will be better than the past or even better than the present. And it will ca- that will catch up and realize, oh, you know, things after this aren't aren't looking too hot or are, 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 are conversely are looking too hot. Yeah, they're in their like blame it on the avocado toast phase of uh, climate change response. <laughs> See, the thing is, they'll get on board if it seems like it will like make people money. Doug Ford only cares about the housing crisis insofar as he can build more homes, right? He well, only cares as... about climate change insofar as he can build an EV plant or subsidize the construction of an EV plant. You gotta sell, someone's got to find a way. way. <laughs> someone's got to find a way to, to to make money off of it, and then tell them if you do this for me, I can make more money off of it and solve your problem. Exactly, and then we'll get another RCMP investigation, yeah, kinda, and things will. That's <laughs> like Elon Musk's continue. whole shtick, isn't it? Or like half a shtick. I mean, in theory, fighting forest fires, at least that seems like something Doug Ford could kind of get behind, right? Like, he loves to shake hands with first responders. He would, like, love to get his photo taken near yeah. a helicopter. He could say the phrase, all hands on deck. Like, like, yeah, this was, is perfect. I looked up, you know, I pulled up that, remember that, that book he theoretically co-authored with his his late brother, Rob? I mean, I think Rob had died by the time it came out, that, like, Ford Nation, two brothers, one vision. Not surprisingly, the you know, the climate, obviously not mentioned at all, the word environment comes up once in a context of something like, like, oh, well, Rob Ford had just taken money from lobbyists from and spent it on, like, environmental causes or, or arts causes. He wouldn't have gotten in trouble. But anyway, there is a picture of it, of uh, I think, of uh, Carla and Krista Ford uh, at an early, at circa 2003 Ford Fest, dressed as firefighters with, like, a caption about how the Fords always support the firefighters. See? Exactly. This, like, this could be his issue. But then he has to own it, right? I think that's the other part we kind of, you know, danced yeah. around in the rest of this conversation. What politician wants to own an issue that is only going to um, engulf them and us. Exactly. Like, in some ways, it's it's just like when the convoy was happening and, and Doug Ford didn't talk about that. And, like, at that at least drove enough attention that, like, it had to – was addressed in other ways. And, you know, the fire was put out. Um, so we can't <laughs> stop climate change now. Climate change is, is immeasurably big. And there are things, but there are things we can do to mitigate it and mitigate its effects. And one of the relatively straightforward things in a provincial context is effectively fighting and managing wildfires. That is a problem that, to an extent, you can you can toss money at and make things better for people to live. You know, you you think this would be an easy win? You think this would be an easy win for Doug Ford? Wear a firefighter suit, what have you, and say he's on top of it, making the air more breathable for Ontarians. But you know, he's has other things to do. So Allison and I wanted to get a better picture of where Ontario's forest fire capabilities really are 
as circa, you know, now, February 2024. Have things improved or changed at all since last summer's apocalyptic TikToks? And do those accurately capture the mood among those who are actually tasked with walking up to the inferno and poking it? I don't know. Is that, is that, I don't think poking it is how you fight fires. Dousing it with a out-of-date plane, as we learn in this interview. Ah, yes. <laughs> so we've talked to Mark Belanger, a fire management technician with the Ministry of Natural Resources, as well as Noah Friedman, a fire crew leader. Here's that interview. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. My name is Michael Mark Belanger, and I am the president of Opsu Local 713 here in Ontario. I'm Noah Friedman. I am the vice president of Opsu 703 Local, uh, and I am a fire crew leader for the government of Ontario. Mark, I recall your when you came to Queen's Park and we're talking about the... Um, the kind of the plight of the forest firefighters last summer. Let us in on how you guys both feel about the the province and the Doug Ford government's response to last year's record-breaking forest fires. You know, you've heard from many different sources, 2023 was the most challenging year that uh, Canada has faced in forest fire suppression and action historically. Last year should have been an excellent opportunity for anyone at the helm to say, okay, we see how bad bad can be and be able to take that and make the new benchmark with it and say, okay, if we're going to protect the people and the resources of Ontario, we have to understand that this isn't a, a 50-year high. This isn't a 25-year high. It's not a 10-year high. It's not even a five-year high, but this is the new normal year by year. Everyone except the Ford government is taking this with the seriousness that it is due. Our fire seasons by the Forest Fire Prevention Act run April 1st to October 31st. Our program has been prompted to provincially accept, expect response mid-March. So we're going into challenges that are beyond anything we've ever seen historically, that are setting a standard for what our future will be with climate change, and my fear for our, our fellow employees and the people of the province of Ontario is that this valid and current and proven information is being left behind by the Ford government. For my loose math, it seems like the province of British Columbia, I think they spent something like $1 billion on fighting fires last year. And then the province of Ontario its emergency firefighting budget, I guess, which would be maybe what they allocated once things got really bad. So I'm not sure how much this is on top of or if it's on top of anything, but was about 130 million, 134 million. That seems like a massive gap to me in, in different spending. Like, I guess, is that to say, like, is cash, you know, how big of a, of a piece of the puzzle is just more money? 
So the way the Ford government paints the picture is that whenever there's a problem, we're always going to spend as much money as we need to. Because when people and communities, specifically the far north indigenous communities, are threatened and they need to be evacuated on an annual basis and those fires need to get put out, here's the unlimited credit card. Take it, do whatever you want. And and genuinely, that money needs to get spent. The problem is, especially in the post-COVID era, a dollar spent a year in advance is worth way more than a dollar spent when you need that thing now. There's no Amazon Prime for firefighting resources, right? So an excellent illustration of this is Canada produces some of the only water bombing aircraft in the world, right? The CL-215s came out in the 60s, I believe. The 415s are what everybody imagines when they see the, the big water bombers. We have just in the last year or two seen the creation of the CL-515s. And the purpose of these is to replace antiquated aircraft that don't have parts and are very expensive to fix. We haven't put an order in for any of them. We can't afford them because, as you very rightfully noticed, $130 million to fight forest fires in a budget, There's, I mean, there's nothing there. But that's just the most insignificant fraction of, of how this government is responding to this issue. When the initial run of 515s uh, was set up, countries in Europe all got their foot in the door before anyone from Ontario actually made it to the table. So the entire initial production run has been completely, and this production run will take years. Oh, at least a decade. Yeah, complete delivery. So the Ontario government is relying on antiquated uh, water bombers, smaller capacity, much higher priced parts because Bombardier sold all of the production rights of the 415 to Viking Air in BC. So this entire process puts the value of the aircraft at the mercy of the producer and to what the provincial government will pay. To what do you attribute this apparent indifference or lack of urgency on the government's part? There's two critical sides to the issue. There's the fact that the fires are only getting worse, and there's the fact that Ontario's wildfire program is a disaster, right? And so what we have is the Ford government exacerbating both issues by not recognizing publicly the extent to which climate change is exacerbating wildfires. I want to ask the Premier, will the Premier show some leadership today and act on the climate emergency? Premier. Well, Mr. Speaker, I'm, I'm actually in shock that the Leader of Opposition is politicizing wildfires. It's, it's, it's staggering, really. But nothing surprised me with the opposition. Right before the 2023 fire season, when the Auditor General is looking into emergency management and spending, says, hey, just because Ontario hasn't been devastated by forest fires, our communities haven't been devastated, although it's very strange because we have issues every year in the far north Indigenous communities um, because, you know, they're in the middle of the boreal and they're threatened and evacuated all the time. But we're talking about southern Ontario, even though Ontario hasn't been devastated, they are not immune to these catastrophes. So then on the other side, you have the way the Ford government paints the picture of Ontario's wildfire program, 
Minister Graydon Smith, who's in charge of our fire program, says, you know, Ontario has a great many crews, quote, and the other quote is, we are internationally recognized as a leader in wildland fire management with hundreds of staff who are highly trained and skilled in fighting wildland fires. Most Ontario forest firefighters that are protecting the rest of Ontario are between the ages of 18 and 23 years old. They have maybe four years of experience in the program. And that's because we just can't keep people because, I mean, that's there's a whole number of reasons for that. So we pretend like climate's not a problem, that fires are not going to get worse. And then on the other hand, we say that our fire program is some of the best in the world and it's literally falling apart at the seams. You can't lose track of the fact that everyone who is promoted in the program. So if you are being promoted to a fire operation technician or a fire management technician, or an entry-level manager or a specialist, the only effective draw is from this pool. So when you look at that, it's not only that we're, we're dealing with 18 to 23 in those frontline positions, it's that every single position that's being filled past that is being filled by people who have a fraction of the necessary information and knowledge and experience to act effectively. It takes seven to 10 years to create an effective knowledge-based response firefighter, a crew leader. We draw from post-secondary people in post-secondary uh, programs who stay for with us for three, two college years, three university years, four years, or they'll do a victory lap, okay? And they'll stay one more year to try and pay things off. You're looking at a maximum of five, maybe six years. They never actually get to be the most knowledgeable person that they can be in suppression before they either leave us all together or they're promoted to a position where their frontline learning stops. Are there retention issues? Would you say that that would, is largely a, a large part an issue of this simply the salary? Or are there other elements of the working conditions that make it difficult to retain people? This has actually started years ago under, I believe it was the Harris government that said, okay, we're going to get rid of full-time crew leaders, which we used to have. And we're going to start investing that knowledge in post-secondary staff, whom we have a lot of, so they thought. And that knowledge base basically invested in them gets rid of full-time people and allows us to save money by just hiring part-time staff. We have a system now where all of the suppression knowledge is invested in people who at a huge, I'm going to say 60%, maybe 70% or higher, never intend to stay with us because their career path makes them more money. If you're going to be a dental hygienist and pull in 80, 90,000 a year, if you're going to be a dentist pulling in 250,000 a year, why on earth would you be choking on carcinogenic smoke wearing poisonous Nomex for more than you actually had to in your career. They're not staying here because they've all got something else to do. The retention is largely based on the fact that it's not a career. I have people who work with me who shop at Value Village and go to the food bank. And these are seasonally reoccurring crew leaders who have to use these to make things work. It seems like, yeah, there's like a, a management gap, maybe perhaps is what you're alluding to. And I wonder how important that is 
given that uh, it seems like a lot of, and not just Ontario, but um, reliance is on bringing in firefighters from foreign or international countries every year to, you know, we hear that 100 firefighters are here from Mexico or Australia. And that in itself feels like a stopgap measure, like it feels like a last minute call. Does that work? Is that a good way to do things? And, and how reliant are we on, on that system? That was actually a huge aspect of the public message from our government this summer was even if things get bad, no problem, we can always call on other people. That's how this works. When they need our help, we help them when they need our, or, you know, vice versa. 2018, there was that large fire just outside of Perry Sound. Uh, it was Perry Sound 33. A lot of folks in the Perry Sound Muskoka area will remember that. It was very devastating. But we were lucky that there was not a whole lot going on at the time because we brought in crews from like hundreds of people from all over Canada, the US, Mexico. You look at a summer like 2023, where are those resources? They don't exist. So the idea that Ontario can be protected by other people is false. It's a false sense of security. But also Ontario looks drastically different than BC does, than Southern California, than Mexico. We literally have to bring people in and we pay a, a premium to bring those people in. And then we put them through boot camp to train them how to fight fire in Ontario. What makes fighting fires in Ontario unique or distinct from fighting fires as, as you alluded to in BC or Mexico, et cetera? It comes back to the Ford government's interests in developing the ring of fire because Ontario has either the first or second, it's up for debate, but has the first or the second largest peatland in the entire world, right? Our, uh, Ontario's James Bay lowlands is an enormous swath of peat. Peat is an enormous carbon sink. Um, and also, it's a great storage for other forms of pollution. There's industry that fires off pollutants like metals, and then they land in the peatlands and the peatland absorbs it. Right. So when we disturb that peatland, when we develop it, we release all of that stuff. The same is true for fire and fighting fires in Ontario peatland is incredibly difficult. And it's notorious because peat doesn't want to go out. It's usually very, very deep, many feet. And because of the way it's compacted ancient organic material, those fires burn underground. We just saw in the news today that there are fires still burning in Alberta, that firefighters are on the ground right now fighting fires, right? And those are those fires that manage to stay underground. Because firefighting is a expertise that's developed uh, geographically and regionally, the systems that other provinces and other countries develop are based on their uh, unique environment. So although we in Canada, there's a there's a bit of boreal just about everywhere. BC is famous for their big trees and repel attack and para attack. We don't do that in Ontario. When we talk about people from the US, they, with the exception of Minnesota, they don't use pumps and hose. They use hand tools and dig, dig line to stop fire from crossing it. 
working with what Noah just said, you cannot dig line in northern Ontario because to find bedrock or a non-combustible surface, you would be going down meters plural. So it, it's an ineffective system. So when the government says, yeah, you know, don't worry about it. We've got you covered from people in other areas, other jurisdictions. They don't know how to run pump and hose. So they're coming here with a completely different application. And for the government to say, we've got you covered is disingenuous. It's really pulling the wool over Ontarians' eyes. I had an American fellow tell me years ago, uh, with his his heavy southern drawl, that water didn't put out fire, dirt did. Yet our system is completely developed around the availability of water in northern Ontario. So when the minister or another member of the government says, we've got you covered, you really have to understand how precise our system is dialed into the environment that we work in and how difficult it is to take somebody who's training for their entire fire career has revolved around a concept that's so ingrained that they don't even believe water puts out fire. Bring them into this environment, put them anywhere, and then actually looking someone in the eye, whether it be a First Nations community and say, we've got you covered the best that we can do, or Perry Sound Muskoka saying, don't worry, we've got you covered, or the people of Toronto who had the most serious smoke exposure they've ever had in their lives this past year, don't worry, we're looking after you, with individuals who are not knowledgeable or capable or trained to work in this environment. You'll be bargaining for a new collective agreement soon, correct? 2024 is the bargaining year for 2025, which is the uh, which should be the first year of the next agreement, yes. How much of the how much of the issues in terms of retention uh, and experience could be solved through things that could be negotiated in the collective agreement? Our relationship with the government is like any really abusive relationship because what we've had happen over the past four years was a government say, you're not worth anything more than this. And us fight and be demoralized and be kicked and rolled over up until the point where an independent arbitrator looked at us and said, no, no, you actually have this value. So going into the negotiation, we've got people who have suddenly been uh, had their self-esteem increased and told that you're actually worth more. And yes, pay is an integral part of the issue that we're having with the government. It's pay and benefits primarily. I talked to a crew leader in BC this year and I gave him the example and I said, all right, we lose people because they come to us for three years, four years. They want to be butchers, bakers, candlestick makers. They make 20, at the time it was, I think, 26, or in in the low 20s, $20,000 a year as a crew leader. They go to school and then they're gone in three years. How does your system work? He says, well, I'll be making over $100,000 a year as a crew leader in BC. My crew people underneath me make $80,000 a year. And in the example of the uh, student who comes in, he used the exact same example back at me. And he said, we get people who come in that are on their way to becoming dental hygienists. And after two or three years of their program working with us, and they realize that they're starting in around $80,000 a year and then moving up to 100 like me, they give up on their post-secondary goal and they come to work with us 
as a career. VCs proven that they can take people away from what they want to do for the rest of their lives and turn them into fire control professionals. And we just continue to lose people. The concept of us being the best in Canada in boreal fire environment is through my experience and my knowledge about 10 years out of date. Because 20 years ago, we could actually claim that because we had some incredibly gifted senior people who changed the program that actually altered national firefighting standards. We've lost all of those people and we've been riding on our laurels from those inputs into the system. And time and time again, we've run into issues because the government, this government is able to take advantage of the fact that it is difficult to communicate these issues. And yet these issues don't just deeply impact us as individuals, our financial situations and our health, but they actually have a grave effect on the people of Ontario. And this government has benefited from the fact that the people of Ontario haven't been threatened to the degree that other provinces around them have. So while I can tell you that there is a possibility that 2024 will, for the people of Ontario, look exactly like 2023 did to our neighbours, it doesn't matter because just as this government knows, the people haven't felt it and they haven't seen it. They haven't watched the fire come over the horizon threatening their community. The closest we've gotten, at least to the larger population, is we felt smoke choking us. And that's a powerful image and that's a powerful feeling, but it's not quite enough. So if I'm going to talk to the people who are listening and the people of Ontario, what I want them to know is that we are not any different and we are nowhere near as prepared as some of the other provinces were this year. And nobody could have been prepared for what happened. We know climate change is getting worse. We know fires are getting worse. And this government, all it's been doing is trying to bury us, bury our voices and hope that nobody in Ontario ever finds out that forest fires exist. And they do, and they're coming, and it's going to be bad when it does come. I guess one of the challenges, obviously, with talking about it, and certainly with writing about or speaking about climate issues is trying to, or I mean, pretty much any issue in the world these days, is wanting to leave people with a sense that things are not necessarily hopeless. And so I guess I'm wondering if you could distill down down to like three specific policy changes or however many that would make or could make a tangible, obvious benefit in terms of Ontario's readiness, preparedness. Honestly, transparency is critical because knowledge is power. We need the people of Ontario to understand the threat that is upon them in the dawn of climate change. But we also need to keep forest fire staff not just forest firefighters, everyone involved in the program. Because when you, as Mark was saying, as we lose people that understand how literally the basic machine works, much less the strategy of evacuating and, you know, triaging when you have limited resources, as we lose that experience and that knowledge, we end up in a worse and worse situation. Let's just get better 
at acknowledging the possibilities and let's get better at teaching our fire staff that things are going to get worse. Forest firefighters need to be recognized as a group of professionals who have inherent value in their knowledge based on the protection of resources in the people of Ontario, and they have to be full-time. But even if today, right now, the government said, we're going to turn over that staff to full-time, make full-time firefighters so that the protection of Ontarians is made paramount, and this group of professionals, the knowledge is invested in them as full-time, it would take 10 years. It would take a full decade for us to take that force and get them the experience that they need to be effective assets in the defense of Ontarians against the upcoming, the the groundswell, the, the incoming tide of fires based on climate change. And people have to know that the government takes full advantage of the fact that we are not classified as firefighters, which means we're not eligible for any legislative benefits that apply to firefighters. If we get cancer or heart disease or anything, they do not recognize that as could have possibly been an occupational illness. We don't wear masks. We have nothing to protect ourselves. We we're in the smoke saturated with carcinogens. We're saturated with smoke, soaking wet from our own sweat when we're working 16 hours a day in the same clothing and all of those carcinogens. Many people, when they fight fire, because you're fighting fire in up to 40 degree heat, choose not to wear any type of undergarment because it's too binding on them and you rash up and you're just being, you're sweating more, right? Why wear a parka in the summer? So, All of this stuff is soaking into your body, and the province of Ontario has excluded us in the National Occupation Code and said, no, you're not a firefighter. You're classed as a silviculturalist. The province of Ontario does not recognize or classify its forest firefighters as forest firefighters. We are classified provincially as resource technicians. There's, it's, yeah, that's that's about that. I had no idea about the Micah Harris era change to how wildfire crew leader contracts were structured. But, you know, it does remind me of something else that's becoming a bit of a running theme on our show. In our episode last summer, Jono, the one about international students, we discussed the quiet 2018 change the Ford government made to allow more public colleges to partner with private companies, resulting in the boom of strip mall schools that the federal government is currently cracking down on. In that episode, you compared the long tail of policy decision implications to shards of glass that people keep stepping on, even if they forget that the glass had ever been broken in the first place. That seems to apply here. Yeah, as Mark and Noah explained, restoring Ontario's wildfire fighting program to the capacity level of the level of expertise it had even in the 1990s would, would would take at least a decade so even if the ford government decides to start rebuilding it today it could take until 2034 that we have something resembling uh something you know we could feel good about a, a world-class wildfire fighting force and you know a lot of wildfires can happen between now and 2034 if we want to end on a slightly 
positive or promising note, Jono, I will let you know that earlier today, uh, Monday, February 12th, when we're recording this, which is a few days after we spoke to Noah and Mark, Finance Minister Peter Bethlen Falvey released a fiscal update that included $81 million in new money for emergency firefighting. Described this money as additional funding to support wildland fire operations across Ontario as forest fires in 2023 exceeded the 10 year average by over 275,000 hectares. I'm sure there's lots of reasons why that funding package is not sufficient and won't uh, create a world-class wildfire fighting force. But at least it's on their mind, right? It it didn't seem to be on their mind, and it does now kind of seem like it's on their mind. Maybe the unseasonably warm February weather uh, has helped. That was Wag the Doug, a show about how much fun Doug Ford would have getting his photo taken next to a wildfire fighting helicopter. I'm Jordan Goldsby, and you can find me on Blue Sky at goldspeed.whatever, and occasionally hosting Shortcuts, which is the media criticism show that comes out Thursdays on the main Candleland feed. I'm up again next week. I'm Allison Smith, and you can find me on Twitter at Queenspark Today. Our producer is Katie Lore. Karen Pugliese is our editor-in-chief, and our theme music is by Nathan Burley. Our podcast is listener-supported. Go to candleland.com slash join to help us keep this podcast going. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Lisa Kudrow was fired from the set of Frasier. Charles Schultz was told he'd never make a living scribbling. Missy Elliott was dropped by her label. And Rita Moreno couldn't land a role of substance for seven years after West Side Story. The stories of famous names, their lesser-known rejections, and the insights those rejections provide. We regret to inform you, The Rejection Podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com <laughs>